Today we'll be looking at verses 21 through 28 as we continue in our study through Matthew's Gospel this Lord's Day. And uh, hopefully we'll be done before the winter storm gets here. So uh, I think I saw a couple flakes, so it might have gone by already. Uh, Matthew chapter 16 verses 21 through 28. If you've been with us, you know we've been going through Matthew, and and there's been a transition point as we have studied Matthew's gospel. Uh, Jesus has been teaching and healing, and and now he has set his eyes on Jerusalem where he will go and will be crucified, and he is beginning to help the disciples to understand these things. Last week we looked in Matthew 16 uh, as uh, Peter gave the great confession of Jesus as the Christ and the Son of the living God, and we're going to look more at that implications of that confession today as we look at verses 21 through 28 of Matthew 16. Let me read the text for us and then pray for our time in God's Word this morning. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your things, your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let me pray for our time in God's Word this morning. Father, as we look at these words, I pray this morning that you would remind us of what they are. These are not just words from a book. and These are not just stories that we tell. Uh, This is the inspired Word of God. And as we read today these words of Christ... Lord, it is the same as if Jesus were standing here today and He were saying these things to us. Uh, These words are living and active. They they pierce our hearts. And so we pray that that's what would happen today. Lord, we pray in these moments as we look to Matthew 16 that You would teach us what it means to be a follower of Christ. That You would help us to understand the necessity of the cross. Lord, that You would help us to realize what it means for us as Christians to to bear our cross, to take up our cross. And Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who perhaps has found their way into this fellowship, this time of worship, who has yet to repent and place their faith in Christ. Lord, I pray You would remove all blinders from their eyes that You would remove all obstacles from their mind, Lord, that they would see the glory of the Gospel and that they would respond to it rightly through repentance and faith. Lord, we pray for these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. In 1956, there were five men who made history. They were in a a ten-page layout there in, in Life magazine, one of the most popular magazines of that day. 
Uh, the men were all in their late 20s, early 30s. One was Ed McCulley. He was a football and track star. He was the president of his senior class. He had a bright future ahead of him and a career in law. Another one was named Peter Fleming. He was 27 years old, also an honor student, a linguist with a bright future. Roger Yarden was 32. He was an athlete and a veteran of World War II where he served as an Army paratrooper. Another one, Nate Saint, was 32 years old. He was an expert pilot, having served in the Air Force in World War II. He had a bright aviation future ahead of him. And the last was Jim Elliott. He was 28 years old, a champion wrestler, debater, honors graduate. And these five men became famous uh, through that magazine layout, but it wasn't for any of those accolades that I just read to you. You see, each of these men were followers of Jesus Christ, and they felt compelled to set aside their worldly pursuits to follow the Lord to the mission field. And they all felt called to go to an area of the world that had been forgotten. They went to Ecuador specifically to minister to a group of people called the Wadani tribe. The Wadani tribe was a, an unreached, uncivilized tribe that had no contact with the outside world. And so these men, all of them married, several of them with children, married, moved their families down there to Ecuador and they began to, to fly a plane over that village. They would drop in supplies and try to make contact Eventually they landed on a, on a small little beach area near a river and they were able to establish contact with one of the tribe members. And they felt like relations were going well. He was going to prayerfully, hopefully introduce them to other members of their tribe, but they didn't realize that, that he had lied to his tribe about their intentions. He had told them that these men were there for, for bad purposes. And so on a January morning they landed their plane. They were met by a group from this tribe who brutally killed these five young men. Their story was then broadcast throughout the world. They appeared in Life magazine and Midley publications, but the story didn't end there. You see, in a complete work of God, rather than, than fleeing this area where their husbands had been killed, many of these wives stayed. Many of them continued to minister to the Wadani people. Eventually, those very men who killed their husbands became Christians. Over time, some of these women moved with their own children into the Wadani tribe and began to disciple these people. And today, the Wadani are a Christian people because of the ministry of these women and the family members of these men who were martyred. Most people who read that story in the mid-50s probably read it with a sense of loss, a sense of, well, that these guys had such a bright future ahead of them, a sense of, oh, it's, it's sad their life was cut short, yet we see in the scope of eternity their life wasn't cut short at all. God used them for a great purpose. It's a different way than the world sees things. It's the way of the cross. And that's what we see in our passage today as we're challenged to view things from a very different perspective as we come to this, my prayer is that we'll gain a deeper understanding of the cross that Jesus speaks of here, the cross that we in turn are called to bear and that we would learn from it. The, the first thing we see as we begin to look at this passage in verse 21 is that the cross is necessary for salvation. Peter here and other disciples have been in an exchange with Jesus where Peter has made this great confession about Jesus Jesus says, who do you say I am? And, and they share about how the culture didn't get it right. And 
they share about how they were beginning to understand who he was, and, and Jesus affirms this great confession, but it's on the heels of that, that that suddenly Peter doesn't get things so well. Here Jesus begins to teach the disciples about what's about to happen. You see, up until this point, he is he is hinted at the crucifixion. He, he's given little little glimpses of the resurrection. He's compared himself to Jonah, and he's mentioned things about the third day. And and as he's done these things, the disciples they're they're not getting it. They're not fully understanding. You see, they're looking for a Messiah who would be a political leader. Uh, they are ready for their people to be set free from Roman authority. They want someone to politically reign, to be their king. They want this nationally, here and now. And that's what the disciples were looking to Jesus for. And so all of a sudden, when Jesus starts talking about going to Jerusalem, well, that goes right along with that, because that's where He would rightly go to reign. That's, that's where the leaders were. And so, I imagine the disciples had, had, had no problem with Jesus saying He was going to Jerusalem. His eyes were set on Jerusalem. They would assume that's where the Messiah would go. But you can see in the text, they certainly had a problem with what He said after that. He said He would, he would suffer many things. Now, imagine this context. Here you have the disciples who've been with Jesus when He has healed those who were suffering. And here He is saying He's going to suffer. He who has authority over nature and can calm the storms. He who has authority over any physical illness and can heal people. He, he restores sight to the blind. He restores hearing to the deaf. He restores health to those who are dying. He can even bring the dead back to life. They've seen all these things take place. And yet, here's Jesus saying He's going to go suffer. Well, surely that didn't make sense to them. And especially when he continued on to say he would suffer many things and he would be killed and he would be raised on the third day. And we know from the text that Peter and the other disciples, they, they didn't quite understand these things. Again, they, they, they didn't want this to happen. Peter and the disciples didn't have any problem with Jesus being ruler and reigning. They just didn't want him to suffer in the process. And so... When he starts talking about suffering and he starts talking about dying, well, Peter doesn't like that. And so we see him rebuke Jesus here. You see, Peter doesn't yet understand the resurrection. In fact, we know all the disciples didn't understand the resurrection. In fact, when Jesus goes to the cross, what do the disciples do? And we don't get a picture of them sitting around going, well, you know what he said, he's going to be raised on the third day. Well, we're just counting down the time here. No, they scatter. They're scared. Why? They don't fully understand it. It's not until the resurrection takes place that the Scripture tells us then they begin to recall the things He said. Then they begin to understand. And by the time we get to First and Second Peter, Peter's able to articulate the crucifixion and resurrection very well. But in this moment, at this time, he doesn't get it. And maybe you don't either. And so he rebukes Jesus. He says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. An accurate translation of this would be Peter was essentially saying, may this never be, Lord, mercy on you, Lord. He's, He's essentially empathetically saying to Jesus, no, 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 this can never happen. Jesus, you've got something wrong here. This isn't how it's supposed to play out. You see, Peter, like many of us, had his idea what the will of God looked like. 
And when God's will is revealed and it's very different than what he thought it would be like, rather than obey it and follow it, he pushes back against it. And so Peter here pushes back. He says, no, Jesus, this, this doesn't need to happen. This isn't how it's supposed to play out. And, and then Jesus rebukes him back. He, he turns to him and he says, get behind me, Satan, for you're a hindrance to me. Now, this is a text that can be a little confusing to us. What's, what's taking place here? Has, has Satan uh, somehow entered into Peter? Uh, is Peter demonically oppressed in this moment? What's happening? Well, I think to understand what's happening, you have to look at what's already happened. You see, we have in Matthew chapter 4, the situation, as you'll recall, where the enemy, where Satan is tempting Jesus. And if you'll recall some of the things he's tempting him with, at one point, he offers Jesus the opportunity to reign, the opportunity to be king, the opportunity to have all the kingdoms of the world if he will simply bow down and worship Satan. Now think about what Satan's offering there. Is he giving the opportunity to Jesus to have anything different than what he's going to one day have? You see, oftentimes we think of temptations as, as things that, that we shouldn't have or things that are sinful or things that, 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 that are bad. But here, Satan is merely putting in front of Jesus something that is rightfully his already. Now, he is the king of kings. He will one day reign. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. All nations will bow down to Jesus. What is it Satan's tempting him with? It's not the opportunity to reign. It's the opportunity to bypass the suffering. You see, Satan is putting in front of Jesus in Matthew 4 the opportunity to have all the success with, with none of the suffering, to, to have all the glory without the cross. And so what does Jesus say to Satan? He says essentially the same thing he says here to Peter. In Matthew 4 he says, Be gone, Satan. When you look at the language, it's very similar to what he says here when he says, Get behind me, Satan. I don't think that Jesus is saying here that, that Peter is possessed by Satan. You don't have to be possessed by the enemy to be a mouthpiece for the enemy. And just like Peter, you and I can do the same thing that he does here without even realizing it. I don't think Peter got out of bed that morning and said, you know, I really hope I speak out contrary to the will of God here. I mean, think about what has just happened. Peter has got something very right. But I think there's a lesson for you and I here. Just because we get something right doesn't mean we're going to get everything right. And oftentimes, right after we get something right, we get something very wrong. And that's exactly what Peter does. He makes this great confession, and on the heels of that confession, he totally misses out. And I think even unknowingly, he becomes a mouthpiece for the enemy himself. And you and I can do the same thing. I'll give you an example. How many of you, not, not in, a, in a biblical confronting way, but perhaps in a sinful and selfish way, have ever accused another believer? Perhaps you've been jealous, perhaps you've been upset, perhaps you've accused them to someone else. Well, the scripture says that there is an accuser. But it's not supposed to be me and you, it's the enemy. That enemy who, who roams around the earth seeking opportunities to accuse us. And so when you and I choose to accuse the brethren, when you and I choose to speak out maliciously against other believers, we are becoming a mouthpiece for the enemy just like Peter was here. And we need to heed the warning that Jesus gives to Peter. We need to understand what we're doing and whose side we are taking. And so Jesus here, 
he rebukes Peter. He tells him that he is wrong, he is a hindrance, and he says to him plainly, you're setting your mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. In church, we are so apt to do the same thing. Because much like Peter, so many of us today, we want all the blessing, we want all the prosperity, we want all the success, we want all the health, we want all the wealth, but we don't want any of the suffering or sickness or poverty or hardships. And so we have, even within the church, this thought that perhaps if we, we have enough faith, none of these bad things will happen and only these good things will happen. And you want more blessing in your life, then you need to have more faith. You want less suffering in your life, then you need to have more faith. You want more stuff in your life, then you need to have more faith. And friends, that is a false gospel. That is exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. He's dealing with Peter who's essentially trying to sell him on that bill of goods. Who's trying to tell him what Satan has told him. You can reign without the cross. But what the scripture says to us plainly is, apart from the cross there is no salvation. Peter doesn't get this because his mind is on the things of man. And so Jesus reminds him that his mind needs to be on the things of God. That his mind needs to be on the scripture which teaches that in the very beginning, God created man to have perfect fellowship with him. But that fellowship was broken when man sinned. When man chose to seek his own interest over God's interest, he sinned and fellowship was broken. But restoration was made possible through the cross of Jesus Christ. That was forecast all the way back in Genesis. When God says to Adam and Eve, That there's going to be a seed that comes from Eve that's going to crush the head of the enemy. He is forecasting. He is is projecting the gospel that's to come. Christ is going to come. And so that is projected throughout the Old Testament. Every time in the Old Testament when you read about sacrifices and you wonder, what what, what was that for? What's that there for? How, How could the blood of a lamb atone for sin? It couldn't atone for sin and God said that. But it is forecasting. It is pointing towards a perfect sacrifice that would come. But without that sacrifice, there is no salvation. Because according to the Scripture, every one of us is under the condemnation of our sin. Every one of us in this room are sinners. Now, I'm not asking for a show of hands. But if I was, every hand would need to go up. And the ones that didn't go up, you would be a liar. We we all have sin. And least you think you don't. How, How many of you would sign up to to broadcast your thoughts out loud for 24 hours? Or just during this sermon? Nobody. (laughs) You'd get beat up. You'd get run out of town. You wouldn't have any friends. Why? Because even the thoughts that enter our minds show that, that we are sinful. We are fallen. We are separated from God. And so God in His grace gave us a perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ on the cross. He died for our sin so that we could be made righteous through Him. But Peter's not understanding that in this moment because his mind is on the things of man. And if our mind is focused on man, we are the same. And we, re- we don't realize the need for the cross. But it is necessary for salvation. It's necessary because Christ there paid the penalty of our sin. We also see as we read about the cross that it's foundational for discipleship. 
Jesus here has taught the disciples so much. In this moment, Peter, after getting things right, he gets things so wrong. He's made this great confession and then he completely misses out on what the cross is for. But Jesus continues in in teaching him and the other disciples. It says in verse 24, he told the disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus here gives a, a road map for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And perhaps you're here this morning and at some point that question has come into your mind. Well, what, what is a Christian supposed to do? What, what is a disciple supposed to do? Because within the church, we've kind of come up with this notion that all you really need to do is just walk the aisle one day and, and say a prayer or, or perhaps at a vacation Bible school or a church camp, you, you sign a card, you just need to make this decision. And then, and then the expression we use is once saved, always saved, which I think points towards a great doctrine in the Scripture. The Scripture teaches that for those who are secure in Christ, you are indeed secure for eternity. But I'm afraid we've used that term kind of loosely to mean, well, well, if I just get things right one time, then I can go do whatever I want to do. I've got my card punched. I've got my fire insurance. I'm good now. And so then decades can go by, and you don't have to go to the church, you don't have to read the Bible, you don't have to do any of that stuff, because you and God are okay, and you're fine. But that's not exactly what the Scripture is saying here. Jesus says very specifically that if you want to be a disciple, if you want to be a follower of His, if you want to set your mind on the things of God and not on the things of man, then three things are necessary. The first one says is you need to deny yourself. Man. What a challenge is that? I mean, our natural inclination is to serve ourselves. You get out of bed in the morning and you're probably not thinking about what someone else wants to eat. You're thinking about what do you want to eat. <laughs> uh, you think about yourself, I think about myself. That's, that's who we are by nature. And that's why we can look back in the Scripture and see it throughout the Scripture. You go back to that creation account we talked about a moment ago. God creates Adam and Eve there in the garden. They, they have sinless perfection they have anything they could ever want or desire and God says to them you can eat of any tree in this entire garden except for this one why did God do that was he withholding good from them no God was reminding them that in his dominion he had ultimate dominion they're in charge of this area but not ultimately he's God he's in charge they're not God they're creation he, he is withholding something from them, but it is something that will hurt them. It was something that will cause them to suffer. But what do they do? They see the fruit of the tree, they desire the fruit of the tree, and they eat it, and sin ensues. You can read through every story of failure in the Scripture, and you can see that there's a seed, there's a foundation of self-fulfillment and self-desire. And if that's not enough, you can just look in the mirror. And you can read your journal. And you can look at your own history. Our inclination is to do what pleases us most. And Jesus says to be a disciple, you turn that upside down. You deny yourself. And he's not saying here, hey, don't, don't, don't eat donuts in the morning or, or don't eat the hamburger for lunch. He's not saying just withhold a little something you want. He's saying you need to die to yourself. He says it very clearly. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul writes this, 
he compares the Christian life this way. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What, what is he saying there? He's saying the Christian life simply means this. There, there was a Richard that was born on December 9th, 1973 in Newport News, Virginia. And if you look at the pictures through the years, that Richard, as he's grown, he's eventually, this is him. You're not necessarily going to see in those pictures an old person and a new person, but if you could somehow put on spiritual goggles, if you could see through the lens of eternity, you would see a very clear distinction in an old Richard and a new Richard. And it doesn't mean that I don't struggle with things or I don't want things that that used to be in my life, but something radically changed when I was 17 years old on the campus of North Carolina State University where God so intervened in my life that I understood and responded to the gospel. And I died so that I could live. And that's what the gospel tells us. And that's why when we come to passages like this that say deny yourself, that is required for the Christian life. It's not sufficient just to to raise your hand, just to pray a prayer. The scripture says we have to die to ourselves, we have to deny ourselves, and and that's not enough. It says we need to take up our cross. Now we know in the scripture that, that Jesus... He went to the cross for our sin. We don't have to actually die on the cross for our sin. So what does it mean we need to take up our cross? I was speaking at a university a number of years ago in a classroom setting. And I'll never forget it was a, it was a Christian school. And there was a young man there who had about a, a four foot cross. And he was carrying that cross around campus with him. And I asked him, I said, why, why are you carrying that cross? And he said, well, because Jesus said that we're all called to, to take up our cross and to bear it. And I said, you foolish person. No, I didn't say that to him. I did afterwards. Uh, that, that's not what the Scripture's saying. The Scripture's not saying that you and I need to go to Lowe's today and, and make a cross and carry it. That, that's not what the Scripture's saying. What the Scripture's saying in bearing our cross also is not that, that, that cross-bearing is when bad stuff happens to us. And yet we hear that all the time. You'll hear people talk about sicknesses. Well, well, I've got this sickness or I've got this with my health, but you know, everybody's got their cross to bear. That, that, that's not what the Scripture's saying. Uh, the Scripture's also not saying that when things don't go right for you that that's your cross. And yet you hear people say that. Well, well, I didn't get the job or this happened to work, but you know, we've all got our cross to bear. Now, what does the Scripture say? Well, a cross, according to this passage, is something that you volitionally, intentionally pursue you take up your cross you don't take up bad health it just happens it's a fallen world sickness is part of that you don't take up bad situations those just happen we're in a fallen world but what you take up when you take up the cross is you identify yourself with Jesus Christ you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ and so when we talk about taking up our cross we're we're talking about stuff like prayer Praying is taking up your cross. Now, you may hear that and say, well, that doesn't sound too hard. Well, tell me about your prayer life. First Thessalonians says we're to pray without ceasing and give thanks in all things. How do you do with giving thanks when bad stuff happens? 
how do you do when situations take place and they're, they're undescribable and they're awful and you can't make any sense of them? Are you on your knees saying, thank you God for this? That's part of taking up our cross. We pray in all things. Reading the scripture is part of taking up our cross. Studying the Bible is part of that. Again, you may say, well, that doesn't sound very hard. Well, the question again, how are we doing at it? Psalm 1 says, the blessed man is one who doesn't take in the counsel of the world. He doesn't stand in the path of sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. His delights in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And yet for the average believer, this is more like this. And we scramble to find it on Sunday morning. Because we don't meditate on it. And yet that is very much part of taking up our cross. Learning about the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ and His commands to us. Witnessing, making disciple, All these disciplines. These are what it means to take up our cross. And that's what the Christian life is to look like. If we are disciples, then Jesus lastly here says that that challenge to discipleship in verse 24 includes following Him. It's not sufficient to just call yourself a a Christian. The Scripture says we must be Christ followers. It's not sufficient to say, well, yes, 30 years ago I made a decision and I joined such and such church and I'm fine now. No, the Scripture says we need to be Christ followers. And following would imply you don't stop. Following would imply you don't put it on hold. Following would imply you keep doing it until the day that you die. And the scripture tells us very clearly that there will be many who don't do that. And it gives no security for those. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, meaning there were people that at one time they considered themselves part of our fellowship, but they went out from us. Why? So that it could be clear that they were never of us to begin with. And that's why there are people, perhaps you grew up with them at another church, perhaps this church, maybe they were the most consistent people in the world for years, and then decades have gone by, and they don't want to have anything to do with the church. Friends, we're, we're, we're not to sit back and say, well, yeah, they're, they're fine, though, because I remember 20 years ago what they said. No, the Scripture says that, that for those who aren't followers, we should be concerned for them. For those who've gone out, it may be that they were never of us to begin with because the Scripture also says, Matthew twenty four thirteen that he who endures to the end will be saved. That means the Christian life is a life of endurance. That means the Christian life is not just a life of when things go good, we show up. The Christian life is one where in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, we realize our call to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him. That is foundational for discipleship, and that's what we see in the cross. And here's the great news. Christ isn't asking us to do anything He hasn't already done. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves. Think of what He denied Himself of. The glory of the Father in heaven. He emptied himself out and took on humanity so that he could go to our cross and die for our sin. He he knows what it means to deny himself. And take up our cross. (laughs) Think about the cross he took up. 
and, and become followers of Him. Look at how He perfectly followed the will of the Father to the point on the eve of His crucifixion. He was saying Himself, Father, not My will, but Your will be done. That is the prayer that every believer should pray. Not My will, not My desire, but Father, what would You have me do? And then Jesus closes this passage with a, with a warning, and essentially it boils down to this, that the cross is essential for living in light of eternity. And he gives a very clear picture of what that means. He says, for whoever, verse 25, would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. And truly I say to you, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Just a note there on verse 28. There's many questions about that. What is Jesus saying? Is he saying that, that the disciples aren't going to die before he returns? Obviously, that's not the case because he's not returned. They have died. I believe what he's saying there is what's about to happen, that, that there's some standing there who are going to see him come in glory. The very next passage is what? The transfiguration where the text tells us he comes in glory. I think that's what it's pointing to. But, but what's he saying before that? He's essentially saying this. You want this world... You can have it, and you can lose everything else. And Jesus is giving here a very practical warning to us in this church this morning. And the warning is this, be careful what you invest your life in. Because most of what we can invest it in are things that aren't going to last very long. And they're going to get sold at an auction house. And they're going to get argued about among our kids and our grandkids. They're going to burn in a fire. They're going to get blown away in a tornado. They're going to get lost in a bad economy. But they're not going to last forever. But there is something you can invest in that will last a lot longer than you and your name. And it's the things you invest in for the glory of Christ's name. You think about that story I told at the beginning of this sermon. Those five men... Most of you in this room probably didn't know their names before today. You may not remember their names after today, but I guarantee you there are some who remember. There's an entire tribe in Ecuador who's come to faith in Christ, and their children and their children's children will spend eternity at the banquet table with Christ because of those men. During that same time they were in Life magazine, there was someone else who was in it that's probably far more familiar to you. He was very famous in his day. His name was Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes was born about 20 years before those men. He lived about 30 years longer than him. He, he had twice the amount of time on this earth than those five men had. During his life, he accumulated more wealth than, than most of us, all of us in this room combined, won't even accumulate. He was one of the richest men of his day. He, he produced movies. He mastered aviation. He won awards. He, he dated the most beautiful actresses of his day. He, he had it all. You know how his life ended? He, he became a recluse. He was so paranoid that people wanted his stuff. 
He was so paranoid people were going to poison him. He wouldn't eat food. He wouldn't cut his nails. He wouldn't cut his hair. He would buy entire hotels just so he could live in them by himself in seclusion. And he died a miserable, forgotten man. No children. They argued in the court system for two years of what to do with his stuff. He was 6'4", and he weighed 90 pounds. He was so malnourished. They couldn't even identify the body without dental records. He gained the world, and he lost his soul. And friends, if we're not careful, we will do the same thing. And I doubt very seriously, many of us are going to have to worry about being in a magazine in this room, or accumulating the wealth of Howard Hughes. But you better believe we've got the same exact question in front of us. What are we going to live for? Is it going to be for your little kingdom? Is it going to be for the glory of Christ and His great kingdom? Because if you lose, if you live for this world, you will very likely lose your soul. But Christ gives another way, a more precious way. And it may lead you to die on a beach in Ecuador and nobody to remember your name, but it will echo for eternity. Be careful what you invest your life in. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, I thank You for Your Word. And I thank You for Christ. And Lord, I thank You for the cross. And Lord, I confess this morning that my inclination, my tendency, my desire so often is to live for my kingdom, for my wants, my desires, my bank account, my stuff. And yet, Lord, you have called me and everyone in this room to a different way. You've called us to live for something much greater than ourselves. Lord, this is not just about writing a check and giving something away. This is not about just doing a few benevolent things. This is about dying to ourselves and living for the name and fame of Jesus Christ. And so I pray, Lord, I beg of you, if there's anyone in this room who's yet to surrender their life to Jesus, Lord, that they would. Lord, that they would heed the warning in this passage that the Son of Man is going to come in glory and He's going to judge and we're going to give account. But Lord, that account could be an account in which we stand before You and we simply say, I belong to Him. His blood has covered my sin. Or Lord, we will stand there and we will say, I'm here to give account. I'm here responsible for it. I have no one to stand in my place. Because we lived our life for ourselves, and we refused to repent and place our faith in Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who would repent and, Lord, who would live our lives for His glory. And I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.